So this morning we're going to be in 1 John, it's actually chapter 4, verse 1 through 6. So if you have a Bible with you, go ahead and turn there with me. If you do not have one, there should be one underneath the seat around you. And if you don't own a copy of the scriptures in your home, please take one of those with you as a gift from us today. So if you are able, please go ahead and stand for the reading of God's word. Again, this is 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and you have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Y'all can be seated. Test, test. Oh, oh, there I am. Sorry about that, Colt. That was my fault. I want to welcome you here. My name is Cord. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. And uh, if it's your first time, I just want to say thank you so much for joining us and uh, for making us a part of your week. Um, we'd love it if you would get connected. If, if it is your first time, there should be a connect card in the seat back in front of you. We'd love it if you just let us know that you were here. Uh, like Jenna said, we're working through a sermon series, walking through the book of First John, talking about uh, Christian assurance or how do we know that we know? How do we know that we are in Christ, that we know Jesus, that he knows us? Um, and last week, Eric talked a little bit about love and the Christian virtue of love being a litmus test for whether or not the love of God has been born into our hearts, is if we love our neighbor. And so there was this kind of parallel between the Cain and Abel story and the Christian story, that as Cain said that his brother Abel, was, he was not his brother Abel's keeper, that the Christian actually responds the exact opposite. And why? Because Christ responded the exact opposite, that he was his brother's keeper and that Christ died for his brothers and that we ought to follow suit. And that the Christian assurance is to know that when you look at your brother, you don't have hatred in your heart. There's no way, John says, to say I love God and that I hate my brother, that those things are incongruent. And that you can be sure that you know Christ because of the love that you have for your brother. And this week, John in the scriptures is going to pick up on a theme that I talked about a couple of weeks ago. Particularly, he's going to be talking about spiritual deception and false teaching. And so I joked about it a few weeks ago, but I'm just going to make mention of it again. I don't know how Eric always gets the sermons on love and I get the ones about the Antichrist, but we're going to go back and try to re- reconfigure for next year's sermon calendar. But um, before we jump in, if you want to bow your heads, I just like to pray for us and ask for the Lord to speak to us through his word. Father, thank you. Um, Thank you that we get to come humbly and expectantly to your word for truth. Thank you that we don't have to guess. We don't have to come with our best efforts. Thank you, my God, that this morning I do not have to conjure up some ideas at truth or my best shot at it. But instead, my God, you have maintained and sustained your word for thousands of years, that it's timeless and that we can look to your word for truth. 
and find it there. Holy Spirit, thank you that you testified to the truth and that we don't have to rely on our own faculties alone, but that you use our very reason and our minds and our conscience to help us to know the truth in the word. And Holy Spirit, thank you that you make much of Jesus, that you exalt the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so this morning, Jesus, we ask, would you shepherd our hearts? As we prayed in the offices before this morning, would you be our good shepherd? Faithfully guide your sheep. You know what each and every one of us need this morning, God, and we come expectantly looking to you to minister to us. Would you speak to us? Would you give us ears to hear? And God, may we be both edified, challenged, convicted, and comforted in your presence. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. So this morning, it, it actually blends very well, all jokes aside, with where Eric left off last week. I, wanna, I want you to turn your attention, not yet to 1 John chapter 4, but if you'll just look at 1 John chapter 3 in verse 24, um, where John ends in this chapter lends itself, it leads directly into what he's about to say. So I just want to read to you where Eric ended last week, and then we'll kind of hop in. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 24, the back says, And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. I'll read that again. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. In other words, the Holy Spirit dwelling and abiding in the Christian acts as an agent of assurance that the Holy Spirit that abides in us is meant to and regularly does remind the Christian of his or her new birth, of our spiritual heritage, of our promised future. That's a work of the Holy Spirit regularly in the Christian life. Now, that would make sense for John to say that because if you follow that up with chapter four, verse number one, he says, beloved, do not believe every spirit, lowercase s. So he's gonna go into false teaching, he's gonna go into these false spirits, he's gonna go into these false prophets on the foundation of you knowing that the Holy Spirit's work is to assure you so these other false spirits' work is to supplant the work of the Holy Spirit. Does this make sense? So for the Christian, how can we be sure that we're in Christ? The Holy Spirit testifies not only to who Jesus is, but who he's made us to be. And there are many false spirits and false prophets in the world that look to supplant the very work that the Holy Spirit's doing. Or in other words, to try and make you and I question everything about who Jesus is and what he's done in us. And that that can be both cosmic, if we question who God is at a cosmic level, but I have found that particularly for Christians, it all starts very personally and really tries to end very personally, which is we really question about where we stand with God. Who is Jesus and what has he done for us? So he not only wants us to know about the Holy Spirit's work, but 1 John chapter 4, verse 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. He wants us to know that there are other spirits, and these other spirits, lowercase s, have another desire, and that that desire is nefarious. They want to attack the very foundation of who Jesus is and in so doing who we are in him. So there's three things here that John does in this passage, and I want to just talk very briefly about those. Number one, you get a pastoral admonition from John. Number two, you get a pastoral command from John. And number three, you're going to get a pastoral encouragement from John. So let's start with the first one. What is his pastoral admonition or rebuke, if you will? This is a very parental tone here. What does he say? Don't believe every spirit. 
beloved. So he starts with beloved. He loves you. He cares for you. He loves the church. He loves the Christians that are listening and reading his letter. He says, beloved, do not believe every spirit. And, it, and listen, if, if you're sitting here this morning, most likely you've heard this from either your parent or your grandparent, right? Don't believe everything that anyone has ever told you. When I was 16 years old, I took my very first plane ride. I know that's old, okay? But listen, I grew up in Huffman, and it's just plane rides weren't frequent, okay? I didn't do that very often. And so I went with a friend of mine who had family that lived in California. So we flew into San Francisco, and his family lived in Richmond, which is a little bit north. So you'd ride the BART. You guys are familiar with that? It's called the Bay Area Rail Transit. I thought it was like a Simpsons character. It's a genuinely a train. takes you out into the you know, north of San Francisco, and we stayed there. But we went into the city, and this was the first time that I had seen, I mean, I'd been to downtown Houston, but I hadn't, I had been to a city feel like San Francisco was at that time. This is a little bit ago. But we went in and we went to some of the, uh, the, right near the bay where they have a lot of like, almost looks like a, what we would consider in Texas, like a county fair, you know? It's just like every, there's big pop-ups and there's food and it's fun and you got bubba gum shrimp that no one locally eats at and, you know, we're just kind of hanging out. And there was this guy who was doing a, uh, a, demonst- a demonstration, or he's kind of a, he's an entertainer. So you, you guys know, you, you see the guy who's like all spray painted in silver and he's the robot, you know? They have that kind of stuff. Well, this guy was an entertainer with a, a little uh, yellow ball and three cups. Have you guys ever seen this? And he maneuvers the cups and then you try to pick where the cup is, right? And so I'm sitting there and there's, everybody, there's a group of people around and everybody's doing, you know, kind of, it's loud. It's, an, it's a vibrant experience. And I remember I was 16 and I walked up, you know, I have like the three $20 bills that, you know, my mother gave me for the trip. And I remember looking in and it just seems like this guy keeps getting hosed. I mean, the guy who's doing it, whoever's guessing just keeps on guessing right and he get, ends up winning the money. And I'm like, how is this guy? He's terrible at his job. I'm looking in, I'm like, he's absolutely awful. I mean, it's obvious where the ball is. It happens over and over. And multiple different people are winning and I'm like, how is this happening? So I'm watching it and I can't, it happened so fast, I couldn't even, I didn't understand why I did it. I just like, I knew where it was. Boom, I put all of my money and I said, it's on this one. As quick as I put the money down, he lifts it, grabs it right out of my hand. He doesn't even look at me. I was over. And I was like, oh man, like what just happened? I'm looking around. My friend is laughing. He's laughing so hard at me. And I'm like, I lost all the money I have for the trip. Well, I walk away. We go have lunch that I did not pay for. And I'm thinking, how did that happen? I was so sure. As we're on our way back, we're going back to the car, or not the car, but to the rail transit. And we see the guy who was doing the and he's got all the people that were winning the money and they're splitting up them. They're splitting up the cash. They were all plants. <laughs> I was the only one who was hosed. And when people would come in, that's when the betting started and they would quickly win and there would be one loser. All right? Now, I didn't know that I was the loser, but everybody else knew, right? And John here, like a parent, and probably like any parent would have been if it wasn't just me and my 16-year-old friend getting hosed, would tell you, don't think that that's a winning hand. You're not going to win there. Don't believe everything that you see. Don't believe everything that you've ever heard. Don't believe what people say. And this has happened to me many times in my life. If, if, you're, if you live around here, maybe someone came to you in a parking lot and said, hey, I work for this really good uh, stereo company, and they have some, uh, I got some speakers in the back of my car, and listen, I, it, it was just extra. It was, it was uh, oversourced, and I'll give it to you for a real good deal. Let me tell you right now, if you thought you got a real good deal, and that happened to you, you didn't get a good deal, okay? That's a lie. But when you're young, you're like, yes, I'm about to get some speakers. 
And John, as a loving pastor, is trying to tell you, do not believe every spirit. And he has a theological framework for this. This is not just something that he's telling you that's good secular advice. This is developed by biblical truth, but it's validated by personal experience. John is dealing with very real false prophets that are trying to come into the church, and they're trying to lead people astray. And so John's saying, hey, there's a spiritual realm. There are powerful oppositional forces to the truth of Jesus. These powerful oppositional forces will work tirelessly to derail the work of the kingdom from advancing. Now, Paul believed this at the very core of his heart, and he had actually seen it with the demonic oppression and possession that he had seen Jesus deal with in his own ministry and is now dealing with. So it wasn't like John was just pulling this out of thin air. He had seen these people who had both infiltrated the church and left out from the church to be false prophets. And the work of these foul and vile spirits is going to go on and on and on. And John is admonishing not just the church in the early first century, but us to say, don't believe every single spirit that you hear. Now, in case you don't believe that John had biblical merit for this, for the sake of time, I can't turn there. But I'll give you text if you're taking notes. In Deuteronomy 13, God lays in his law through the words of Moses, and he says that if any prophet comes and tells you to go after other gods, do not listen to that prophet. He is not from me. This is why God gives Moses the name Yahweh, and he says if they, if they come in my name, but they tell you to go after another god, they are false prophets that have been sent by the evil one to try and lead you astray. See, God's biggest issue with the children of Israel intermarrying with all of the other tribes of the nations had nothing to do with race or ethnicity. It had everything to do with spiritual adultery. That at the end of the day, he did not want them to have their hearts drawn away from the living God. That's all that he cared about. In Deuteronomy chapter number 18, you'll see that God actually lays out in his law that if you have a false prophet among you, the death penalty is for them. That's what he says. That's intense, right? It's why at Providence, like, we're real weird about the thus saith the Lord, because that's scary. That's what God says. He says, if there's a false prophet among you, that they should be put to death. And then he says, how do you know if it's a false prophet? If what they say does not come to pass. That's a high order, isn't it? You guys ever watch TV? They do not do a great job, all right, at upholding that standard. Second Corinthians in the New Testament, Paul says this, there are super apostles, and they are coming to you preaching a different Christ. Don't listen to them. In Galatians, Paul ups the ante in chapter number one, and he says, if an angel comes to you from heaven, or even if I tell you that there's a different gospel, let them be accursed, including me. That's an intense thought, right? Paul's saying, even if it's me later on in my life and I got deceived, don't believe me. If you preach a different Christ, it's not the true Christ. And I can't commend this to you enough. And the reason for this is because we live in an unparalleled age of information, there has never been a time before our time that you can get more information than you can now. I just grabbed a couple of stats. These are from Forbes magazine. And listen, you could probably find crazier ones than these, but I'll just read them to you. Just regarding Facebook, there's 2.2 billion users of Facebook that are active. You have 31.25 million messages per minute that are sent. Just messages, 31.25 million there are 2.77 million videos that are viewed per minute on Facebook. There are 6.1 billion smartphone users, 2.1 billion websites on the internet, and this is the one that really shocked me. There are 40,000 searches every second on Google. 
40,000 searches every second. So it's pretty significant, I would say. And there's a positive side to this, right, which is that now there's more information available and that helps us all the time, right? If you're just driving and you're like, you know what, who won you know, the 1913 World Series? If we were watching the Astros, I don't know. And then you find it, that's cool. Um, or maybe you're driving somewhere and you realize, you know, I don't know where I'm going. You could just map it. That's kind of cool too. Like, maybe you guys remember MapQuest? You know how to do that? You print them out, you know, and your printer didn't work all that well. It misses a whole line. You're just totally messed over, you know? Now you just got your phone. That's kind of cool. There's a real downside to this too, though, isn't there? Because it also means that lies can get around the world faster than ever. And false spirits that regularly energize false teachers can carry out their false great commission to the ends of the earth, making disciples of darkness. That's terrifying. Charles Spurgeon knew this in the 1700s, and he said, a lie can travel halfway around the world while truth gets its boots on. Right? That's the scary part. So John, what he's saying here, don't close your ears and say, what does this old man know in the first century about truth and lies? It's even more prevalent today for you to hear him when he says, don't believe every spirit. Don't believe every video you've watched, every conspiracy theory you've heard, no matter how convincing and how many views on YouTube, how many retweets it got, because that can lead you astray. So that's his admonition. Don't believe everything you hear. Then he gives you a command, which I think is really a tool. What's his command? Test the spirits. Test the spirits. Let's read in verse number one. But test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. Verse two, by this, you know the spirit of God. So he's gonna give you the litmus test. How do you test the spirits, John? Well, here's what he says. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming, and now is already in the world. So the Christian needs to know that at the heart, everything that we test for validity or for falsehood in regards to our theological framework should center around the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Now I want you to listen to me for a second. How important is it for you to know who Jesus is and what he has done? This is why Jesus in his ministry on the earth, he asked his disciples, what do people say about me? Who do they say that I am? And he would hear all of these different opinions from all of these different religious elite. The Pharisees say this, the Sadducees say this, the government officials say this, the Jews say this, the Greeks say this. And then Jesus turns and he looks to his disciples and says, but who do you say that I am? This is Peter's shining moment, right? He stands up, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And now listen to this, what does he say? He says, Peter, blessed are you. Because why? Because God revealed this to you. You can't take glory for this. The spirit of God that abides in the Christian validates, illuminates the person and the work of Jesus so that we would know who he is. And this is so important, why? Because like we talked about a couple of weeks ago, the world and the spirit of the world looks to reject Jesus, redefine Jesus, or refine Jesus. You guys remember that? Just to reject him outright, he has not really come in the flesh or he is not really God in the flesh. They'll either reject his divinity or they'll reject his humanity. Either way, it diminishes the God-man, Jesus Christ, who is 100% man and 100% God, and it's extremely important. So they'll outright reject him or they will redefine him. They'll say, well, he wasn't really this, he was that, or they'll just refine him by blunting the edges, but nonetheless, it actually takes away from who Jesus is. 
So I want to say this. Some might be spiritually in error, and some might be spiritually deceptive. Those are different things, although it might look similar, right? So it's, very, it's entirely plausible for you and I to be spiritually in an error and be a believer, uh, you, you may even see this in your home group, right? Someone steps up and, and starts sharing something and they start saying, you know, this is how I feel and this has been going on and this has been going on and this has been going on and this is how I feel about it. And you're hearing in your, in your ears saying, that's not true though, man. You're, you're not hearing from God. That's not true about you. Maybe it looks like this. A gal has been really quiet in home group. Doesn't really want to share. Someone steps up, says, hey man, yeah, you haven't said anything. What do you think? And they say, you know, I just, I just feel like I, I need to try harder. I haven't been being a very good wife and I haven't been loving my kids well and I just need to try harder and do better and feel terrible about it and start expressing a lot of guilt and, and, uh, and maybe I'm just not, not really you know, worth much. Well, you're like, well, wait, that's not true. Like, actually, the message of you need to try harder and do better sounds a lot like legalism. Try harder and do better actually could be really damning Try harder and do better if it's not rooted in the gospel that Jesus has already done everything that needs to be done, that he loves you as you are, that your worth is rooted in him and therefore you're worthy. Well, that's really damaging. So it's entirely plausible to be in spiritual error, right? And the error, how do you know the difference between spiritual error and spiritual deception is how they respond to that. When someone's able to speak in and say, hey, that's not true, this is who Jesus is. Ah, that's right. And this kind of, wipe the scales from the eyes. You're right, Jesus loves me, cares about me. Or someone who's spiritually deceptive is extremely oppositional whenever you try to open their eyes to say, no, this is who Jesus is, and then there's an antagonism to that. No, here's who he is. And really what John's saying here is, is it really important for you to know the difference? Not not essentially, at least not initially. Your job's not necessarily to know which one is which off the bat, but to know the difference between truth and error, that's really important. (laughs) Because if you don't know the difference between truth and error, then you yourself could be really, really deceived. So who is Jesus? Jesus Christ, the son of the living God. I wanna make one more mention here just for the sake of um, what John's saying. Because I know for many of us, you might be thinking, Court, I know a lot of people who confess Jesus as, as the Lord and you could almost pay anybody on the street and they could get up on the stage and say what you just said if it's the right price. So are you saying that's legitimate just because they vocalized that? And I would say no. And here's why. If you take the word confess here in 1 John chapter number four and you lay it up against 1 John chapter one where it says that we should confess our sins and walk in fellowship, what's the idea that John's getting across? Does confession of sins just look like this? Yeah, I'm a sinner. So what? Or for the Christian, does confession of sins look like sincere, contrite repentance that not only acknowledges what's going on in the heart, but acknowledges the effects that it has in the hands, longing and looking for the absolution that only comes from Christ and his blood that was shed, right? There's an actual contrition in the heart, or as the Psalms say, a broken and contrite heart, O Lord, you will not despise. So this idea that you confess Jesus is Lord with your mouth has to include the heart, which means it has to include sincerity, which means It has everything to do not only with what the person says about Jesus, but it has everything to do with the person's disposition about the person and work of Christ. Which means two things. I think it means that it ups the ante on confession, and it means that for you and I, we need to be much more careful 
in the way in which we view others, that sometimes people can look like a wolf from 100 yards away, and we're not, if we don't actually have any intimacy with them, you can actually do some damage, right? So get to know someone and the disposition of their heart. Jesus is to Christianity like the hub at the center of the wheel that all of the other spokes attach to. If you take away the hub, all of the spokes fall flat. Without Jesus, the resurrected king, the ho- we have no hope, and now, I mean we are without hope forever. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, if the resurrection is not true, that you and I, our faith is in vain, and we might as well do something else. At the heart of Christianity, we have Jesus. I've spent a good portion of my life in ministry fighting for this. It's the most important thing to fight over. Jesus, who is he? What's he done? I say that to say, when you are able to agree that that's the main thing, it helps you to ignore other distractions. Like, here's one, carpet colors for the church. Not really that important. You know when that becomes important? When you forget how important Jesus is. Paint colors, right? Or ministry team issues. I want to be scheduled on that Sunday. Okay, well, that becomes important when Jesus isn't really that important. Coffee preferences. I'm just making these up. I don't know if they really are these things. Jen always gets on to me. She's like, listen, I got the coffee taken care of. Stop using it as an example. But who knows? That happens at times, right? I, you know, moved to H-E-B coffee. What if, you know, so what? We saved a few bucks. It's nasty. These are real things, you know. Uh, gossip happens in the church whenever people make tertiary things, main things. Interpersonal squabbles that really, when you get down to the heart of it, they don't mean all that much. If Jesus is at the center and we recognize the spiritual battle that goes on regularly, raging war not only outside of the church but inside of the church, then and only then can all of the interpersonal things, the tertiary things, or the small minor things really be small and minor. Because here's what happens. When you don't recognize the spiritual battle, when you don't, those minor things start to take center stage. And that might sound like it's no big deal, but I would contend with you that when the minor things take center stage, it's not long after that before division arises. When we lose Jesus, we're always gonna fall into legalism or license. What are those two things? Well, on one, legalism, you have to earn your keep in the kingdom through your behavior. Or with license, you have to abuse your gift of grace by not caring all that much. And really, what is that at the heart. Well, you have Jesus at the center where if you lose Jesus, you have to rationalize sin. Either sin's a really big deal and now you have to try and stop sinning on your own, which is like putting out the fires of hell with a water gun, or sin's not really a big deal so you don't really need a savior. Both of those things are lies. The truth is it's a really big deal dealt with by Jesus, but if you lose him, you lose it all. And John says, test the spirits by asking yourself, I make Jesus a big deal? Jesus precious? Is he king? Is he central? The true Jesus, the real Jesus, not the refined Jesus, not the redefined Jesus, but the real Jesus of scripture, is it a big deal? And John Piper said something really important about this chapter in the Bible. He says, he says, I think that this is meant to be not just a litmus test for false teachers so that you can turn on TBN and mock people, but it's meant to be a personal litmus test first. Then it's supposed to be an interpersonal litmus test. So what do you mean by that? Well, I would challenge us this morning to say some of us don't even know the truth by which we're making decisions in our own household sometimes, you know? 
sometimes we don't recognize that we're being infiltrated by these other ideas from the outside and we make major life decisions not based on who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, but we make these major life decisions just based on how we feel. Culturally, the winds blow where they will and we say, oh, this is what might be good. Or, and in reality, we haven't sought God about it. We haven't questioned the most core questions about how to make life calls and it's because we haven't heeded John's warning here. It's not just that we should reject the lie that Jesus isn't the Christ. It's that we should reject any core life advice that comes from someone who doesn't foundationally believe that Jesus is the Christ. So I want to challenge you here for a second. I'm not saying don't have non-believing friends. In fact, how can we ever reach the world if you don't have non-believing friends? I will tell you, though, if your non-believing friends give you life advice and that's your first place to go, that is not only unwise, it's idiotic. If you believe that Jesus is who he says he is, why would you do that? They don't have the same feeling about marriage that Jesus does, so very easily they could say, toss that guy, he's a chump. Where Jesus would say, you made a life covenant vow with him before others and before me. That's a major difference. And sometimes we just kind of, well, they're my friends though, they're wise. They read like three Amazon self-help books. Who cares? They can, they can have all sorts of great characteristics because they're made in the image of God and you would love them. You can care for them. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't be able to have coffee and have an enjoyable conversation, but when it comes to core life decisions, if you're not in the community of Christians who believe that there is a God who loves you, that Jesus is the savior of the world, the lamb of God who's taken away sin, yeah, actual sin, that's an important doctrine, and you're taking life advice from someone who doesn't even, not really sure about sin, that's a problem you got to see it as a problem before you start trying to call out false teachers. It's a problem internally. The church loses its power when it stops looking to Jesus and starts, it stops looking to the gospel when it refuses to give him the appropriate place at the table and instead finds any other worldly idea as the central focal point. Jesus is not a sideshow. He's not the sideshow of the church. He's not the sideshow of our lives. He's the king. We don't take cues from the world. We take cues from him. And I would really challenge you, Christian, when you make major life decisions, do you take cues from Jesus or do you just kind of rationalize that away and say, well, I don't really believe that he leads like that. I just believe that I get to make all these decisions on my own. And I would say that sometimes your theological framework hinders you from being able to really, A, walk in wisdom, Or on the flip side, your theological framework gives you an excuse to do whatever you want. And then say, well, God gave me this rational mind. Can I tell you something? Your rational mind, if not illuminated by the Spirit, will lead you to some terrible places. The book of Judges is a good example of that. The book of Judges says, every man did what was right in his own eyes. And if you just want to read what that turned out to be, it was tragic. There's some, my wife sometimes reads it and says, why? Why is God not saying anything about this? She's asked me that a million times. I'll say, well, we have to read the prophets. He has a lot to say. But there's some things that happens in, happen in Judges and you're just like, what in the world's happening? It's because everybody just decided that they had a good idea. The Proverbs say it like this. There's a way that seems right to man, but in the end it leads to destruction. We have to center our own personal lives on the person and work of Jesus. And then we can really have a litmus test for others, right? But it's kind of like, uh, well, Jesus said it like this. It's like, You know, you're telling someone to take the speck out of their own eye, but you have a big old log in your own eye. Well, that would be saying that someone's not centered on Christ and I'm not gonna believe you when you yourself are similarly operating. Okay, so we got the admonition, we got the command, and then we got the encouragement. So I told you we get somewhere good. The encouragement. What does John encourage us with? He encourages us with this. 
Verse number four, little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. That's a great encouragement. Christian, he says, hey, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid, you've overcome the false prophets. How? Because he who's in you is greater than he who is in the world. The Holy Spirit abides in you and you don't have to be afraid. They are from the world and therefore they speak from the world. The world listens to them. But we are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. And by this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. John wants to encourage you here because he knows this is a scary thought. There's a nefarious plot to scheme against you and me and our loved ones to derail us from loving Jesus and abiding in his love for all the days of our lives. Now, if you aren't a little terrified by that, I would say you probably don't understand one of two things. If you're not scared by that idea, you probably don't know your own weakness or you probably don't know Satan's power and hatred for you. Both of those things are well-documented in the Bible. Like you ever thought about what the Bible calls us as like you use animal analogies? You know what we don't ever get? Lion. You know, bear, nothing. You know, we get sheep, which I don't know if you've been around sheep before. They're not all that terrifying, not scary, not smart. Smelly, really dependent on shepherds. Here's another one. Uh, there's, a, there's this interaction, I think it's in the prophets where Jacob says, I am a worm before God, so you're a worm. And then God responds to Jacob and he doesn't say, you're not a worm, you're a snowflake. You're not a worm, you're my child. You know, he, he says, oh, worm, Jacob. That's how God responds to him. <laughs> he says, yeah, you are a worm. <laughs> I love it when Moses says, I'm, I am a stutterer. I shouldn't be leading the people of God. That God doesn't say, you are not. God goes, yeah, but who puts the words in man's mouth, Moses? So it's important that we recognize the Bible's very clear about you and I that we're weak. Uh, Paul even says it's in, our, it's in our weakness that Christ's power is made visible and strong. We're made strong. It's part of the Christian walk to not only admit weakness, but to in some ways glory in it because God is glorified in our weakness and through our weaknesses. Also, Satan's power and his hatred for human beings is throughout. Jesus has the most solid and the most well-formed theology around who Satan is. Very few other authors talk about him as frankly as Jesus does. John chapter 8 is a great chapter to see. He says he's a murderer from the beginning. He's a liar, and he's the father of lies. When he lies, he speaks from his own character. The thief has come to steal, to kill, and to destroy. Jesus was very clear about who Satan is. He's, the, he's, he's having one-on-one -on -one conversations with him in the wilderness. So when we recognize that there's this plot from this very powerful fallen angel that hates us in this world system that's created to derail us, you and I should be like, wow, that's scary, right? And so John says, don't worry. God, the Holy Spirit abides in you. So in other words, the Holy Spirit is more powerful than any of the darkness that tries to overtake you. He encourages the early church by saying, you've already overcome them. Who's the them? The false prophets. How did they overcome them? They overcame them by not falling into their lies and holding fast to the truth that's in Christ. The Holy Spirit abides in you. Hold fast to the truth that you have in Jesus. My son has a real uh, struggle with sleeping at night. It's been pretty regular for, since we brought him home, um, 
he's really scared of the dark, so he sleeps next to us. And I've been talking with him about it because his speech is coming along, so we get to have a little bit more conversation. And uh, you kind of have to interpret with Jonas. But he's getting much better. And I, I was talking to him, why are you scared? He used to say for about a year and a half that he would just say moon. That meant the moon scared him, which I was trying to explain to him. That didn't make sense, son. Like the moon is light at night. Scared of the dark, scared of the moon. Didn't work. But I was talking to him the other day, and he told me, this is for real, he's scared of the penguin that lives in his room. I don't have any idea where he came up with this. I thought maybe he watched Billy Madison or something. I haven't seen it, but anyway. I'm like, what do you mean? And he points to a particular place in the room where a penguin lives. And I'm like, son, there's no penguin. Penguin, moon, dark. There's where the penguin lives. And the only way that I can help him to overcome this is when I'm with him. So he'll hold my hand and he'll walk and he only wants to go and confront the penguin if I'm holding his hand. He ain't going in there without me holding his hand. And the reason for this, and you probably experienced this as a parent uh, too, it's your presence that brings confidence to the child, right? To my son, it's just me being there with him. I don't know if in his mind he thinks that I could outduke the penguin or what, but if me being there gives him strength. And John does that for us here when he says, when you consider all of the forces that work against your faith, don't be afraid the Holy Spirit abides in you. Which means that no amount of darkness that could try to overtake you can ever withstand the power of God that lives inside of you. And then he finishes by saying that there are these competing voices. And I thought this was very helpful and I'll close with it. This week, we, I had a chance to go with a couple of guides to a church planting conference that was in Clear Lake, and a pastor there named Bruce Wesley, who I greatly respect, was leading one of the sessions. And they kind of did it like TED Talk style, where you know you did like 10-minute sermonettes, and they had like six different sermons, then you'd have a little break, so it's like an hour full of like six sermons, you just get, it's like water from a fire hose, then you get a chance to kind of talk with your team, then go back, and Bruce got up, and he gave a talk that I've heard him give a number of times to a number of times to church planters, and he was speaking about the calling to church plant. And he said that at the end of the day, the church planter must be able to tune out all of the voices that say a lot of things to incline their ear to the voice, capital V. That if you could tune out all of the voices to hear the voice, and that voice is compelling to call you to do this, then you have to obey the voice. And I've heard it a number of times, but I don't know why, just this time just stuck with me that that can be translated to the entire Christian life. The competing voices for your heart and for my heart are so incredibly powerful, and yet the voice is more powerful. And if we can incline our ear to the voice, the voice of God the Holy Spirit, then we can overcome I want to encourage you, Christian, God the Holy Spirit abides in you. And maybe think and consider this thought. Have you been inclining your ear to his voice lately? So here are some of the lies that the voices tell us from 1 John. These are just me. I'm taking all of the lies that John combats in the first four chapters. You don't have any sin to worry about. That's one voice. You can have fellowship with God and walk in darkness. No big deal. You don't have to pursue obedience. You can love God and hate your brother. No big deal. You can love God and be in love with the world and the worldly system. You don't have to sacrifice in order to love other people. Just tell them. That's enough. 
Just tell them with your words, keep it convenient. How about some ones that aren't in 1 John? Maybe you've heard and listened to the voices saying this, your spouse doesn't love you anymore. You need to find somebody new. This is getting boring. You've outgrown your need for the church. You're in a, you're in a healthy place now. You don't really have to need to be there. You're just fine. Everything's just fine. I don't know what it is, but as I was just really serving this passage, I started asking myself, what are the voices in my life that are so powerful that they've become truths I live by? And by doing so, how have I diminished and turned down the volume to the voice of truth? And so I wanna ask you that question, Christian, this morning. Have you been inclining your ear to his voice? If you'll stand to your feet, I'll pray for us. Jesus, would you turn up the volume on your voice this morning? Your word says that your sheep will hear your voice. And I know that my friends under the sound of my voice, many of them long, my God, to hear you. However you are pleased to do so, whether it be through some of the words that I spoke today, perhaps some of the songs that Brandon and the team lead us to sing. However it pleases your heart, my God, to speak to us this morning, we ask, would you turn up the volume on your voice? so that we can so clearly recognize all of the other voices that are just competing to lie. All the schemes to destroy families that the enemy's trying to put into motion, my God, would you thwart them? All the schemes he's putting into motion to try and keep people in depression and anxiety, would you thwart them? All the schemes he's trying to put into motion to help us believe lies, that cause bitterness in our heart toward our brothers and our sisters. God, would you thwart them? As we come now and we take of your table, Lord Jesus, would you remind us that you are more than enough? Our acceptability before the Father could never be measured up to by our own moral standard, but Jesus, your perfect holiness is enough. God, help us to lean in. Speak in these moments of silence. Speak in these moments. And just as John said, let us be those who hear you so that we can easily reject the lies. You're a living God, Jesus. You're alive. We expect, eagerly expect to hear. In Jesus' name.